As always, the internet is rapidly changing, but we are in a particularly very transformative moment right now where everything from how people do advertising online is changing because some of the privacy changes Apple made because of how people are using the internet. You are going to see, again, the types of platforms that people are using and posting information on is different. And also how people expect folks to respond or the penalties that they should put on entities who try to spread mis- and disinformation is also going to be different. Governments are getting involved in passing regulation. In some countries, it is with good intent. In other countries around the world, some people are worried that it's really the government trying to pass these laws under the guise of fighting false info. But in reality, what they potentially want to do is suppress minority voices. Hi, I'm Christy. I'm Adam, and you're listening to The Foil Podcast. Where we talk about the opportunities and the risks of the data age. What it means for you and what it might mean for us all. Hey, Katie Harbath, welcome to The Foil. It's great to have you here. You're a global leader at the intersection of elections, democracy and tech. The CEO of Anchor Change, where you help your clients think through tech policy issues. And you're the Director of Technology and Democracy for the International Republican Institute and a fellow at the Bar Partisan Policy Centre. So, Katie, you spent 10 years at Facebook uh, as, a, as the Director of Public Policy and you built and led global teams that managed elections and helped governments and political figures use the social network to connect with their constituents. It's obviously a really important time for elections around the world. We've just had the French election, and we're in the middle of the Australian federal election. So there seems no better person to talk to than yourself about elections and the impact of tech on our democracy. So welcome. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Could you share with us your personal story first up? How did you get to be at this moment working at the intersection of elections, democracy and tech? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story. So I'm from Green Bay, Wisconsin originally, which is in the middle of the the country up in the Great Lakes area. And I originally wanted to be a journalist, but got the political bug when I was working on the student newspaper there and moved out to Washington, D.C. in 2003. And I started working at the Republican National Committee. And as I was joining the organization, Some folks were leaving to go to President Bush's re-election campaign to work on then what was called the e-campaign team. So it was the team that, you know, this is the first elections where you're really having robust websites. They're sending out emails, but social media doesn't exist yet. And so I was super interested in that work. I wrote a memo to my boss at the party about all this stuff I thought we should be doing online. And I ended up um, being put in charge of it. And I learned how to code emails and do website or um, like update websites. I learned how to um, edit video and all of those types of things. And I started making it my career. Um, Every job I've pretty much had other than one never existed before. Um, And so I kind of grew up with digital impacting campaigns and democracy over the years. And so the first eight years doing it for campaigns and then joining Facebook in 2011 to help uh, At the time, there was somebody working with Democratic candidates in the States. I was hired to work with Republicans on how to best use Facebook. Facebook pages had only been out for about three years, um, actually probably only about two at that time. And so it was still a really new thing that a lot of offices and folks weren't quite sure if this social media thing was something that could actually help them to win 
elections. And after the 2012 campaign, um, we started getting a lot of questions internationally. So I started um, building out the international team to to work on those issues. We were also working on things like our election day reminders to remind people when it was election day. We were bringing those globally. And then after the 2016 election, when the work really shifted to more of these integrity issues, my job shifted as well. And so now I was doing more on helping to build, um, for instance, our transparency into the political and issue ads. I was working a lot on mis and disinformation. I was working a lot with the civic integrity product team to try to think about the different measures that we should be putting into place to help keep the platform safe. And so that was my main focus from about 2017 until I left the company in March of last year. It's a fascinating journey that you've had. And and certainly through that period of time, you've seen a lot of change. In a recent talk at South by Southwest about elections and democracy, you highlighted that every five years, the world tends to have a huge year of elections. And you wanted to raise awareness about the fact that a number of countries will be going to the polls in 2024, but in the lead up, obviously, the Australian election is happening now. Can you tell us what are the issues that voters need to be aware of on these issues related to misinformation, disinformation and malinformation? So I think there's a couple of different angles on this that people need to be aware of. The first is that this is a constantly changing space. So anything that I say today could still look totally different um, in terms of the issues we'll see in 2024. Um, The issues that Australians saw um, in 2019, when you last went to the polls, might be different um, than what you're seeing this time because we are seeing more domestic actors um, in engaging in this work. We're also seeing actors who are, you know, it's not like they're pretending to be somebody else. They're doing it under their own identities. Um, you're also seeing how people are using social media change. You're seeing more people using messaging type apps. Um, many of these apps are encrypted, which make it harder to fight mis- and disinformation. You're seeing apps like TikTok gain in a lot of popularity and short form video um, that is that is happening. And I really do think that the other thing that people should be aware of is that, as always, the Internet is rapidly changing. But we are in a particularly very transformative moment right now where everything from how people do advertising online is changing because some of the privacy changes Apple made um, because of how people are using the Internet. You are going to see, um, again, uh, the types of platforms that people are, are using and posting information on is, is different. Um, and also how people expect folks to respond or the penalties that they should put on entities who try to spread mis- and disinformation is also going to be different. And finally, governments are getting involved. Governments are getting involved in um, passing regulation. In some countries, it is with good intent. In other countries around the world, some people are worried that it's really the government trying to pass these laws under the guise of fighting false info. But in reality, what they potentially want to do is suppress minority voices. Um, So sadly, um, this is getting harder. It is getting more decentralized and it is more rapidly changing that requires us to even be more diligent in terms of trying to think about solutions in this space. To me, it, it always seems like the, the notion of mis- and disinformation, at least, it kind of hinges on the question of whether or not you can say for sure what is true in order to be able to identify it. You know it's misinformation only, or you can say it's misinformation only if it's not true. So how, how shall we think about structuring institutions, perhaps, or society more generally around this question of what is true? 
Yeah. And I think, too, it's important that it may be helpful for us to do a little definition defining of some of these terms, because I think you hear misinformation thrown around, disinformation thrown around. Now, malinformation is another new term that has been coming out. So um, if you're okay with it, I'm going to do a little quick here primer and and definition. So misinfo is information that is spread unknowingly or wrong information that is spread unknowingly. So, um, you know, your mom or dad or family member sees something on Facebook or Twitter um, they think it's true and so they share it. That's misinformation. Disinformation is where the intent of the actor who is putting it out there is malicious. They are purposely putting information out there with the purpose to mislead and deceive people. Um, A good example of this is this is what the Russian Internet Research Agency did in the U.S. 2016 election. Now, those two Actions often play off of one another. So disinformation can it's information can start as disinformation and then move into misinformation because they want to start having regular people start to share it. Malinformation is a new term that's been coming out now because it is not black or white, like you said, Adam. It is oftentimes there are some truths in the in this in these stories, but there's also falsehoods. And so it makes it hard to say it's 100% true or it's 100% false. Some of these stories too, or like you think about the science around COVID are rapidly evolving. So how do you think about the fact that, you know, something that somebody says today could evolve as the science gets better? Um, and so you think about early on, it was like, don't wear masks because we don't have enough PPE for medical folks. And then all of a sudden it was like, everybody wear masks. And folks are like, wait a second. Like you just told me like, so what was false before is now true. And now it's vice versa. And that just adds more complexity into this because of these rapidly evolving situations. And of course, the moniker of the science is also a a bit of a misnomer because as we know, also the scientific uh, method, the scientific enterprise sort of relies on competing views as to what may or may not be true. And it's in the debate and the ongoing entertainment of a variety of different uh, possibilities that the truth ultimately you know, manifests in an emergent sort of a way. So where you say that there are truths, so-called, that are intermingled with uh, mistruths or inaccurate information to sort of compose what we might refer to as malinformation, that that is insidious if it were if it were the case and also very difficult to identify again because uh you know what is true is is also as you said um you know with the covid example always a, a sort of a shifting position and so i'd really love to know coming back to the question of vdem and and um and the loss of 30 years worth of democracy you know with regard to that finding what does that what does that really mean when we say we've lost 30 years worth of democracy is this to do with the deterioration of conceptions of truth how have we found ourselves there yeah, it's definitely been a component of it, right? Um, because, um, but it's not the only thing um, that has contributed to the downfall of of some of these ratings over the last 10 years. Um, it's been also, you know, the, you have more and more authoritarian actors who are, a lot of them who are taking like um, steps out of the Putin playbook. You know, Putin really started taking some steps about 10 years ago in some of the things he was doing. And you're seeing other folks that are able to do that. You're seeing this increased influence of China um, and, and what what China is doing and, and how they're working geopolitically that are a part of this. And so like most things, while the simpler answer would be like it's all it's all social media's fault or it's all about because of mis- and disinf- disinformation. That all has existed in the past. This is new and evolving ways um, that we're looking at this. And there's a lot of different parts of society that are bringing us to these points. 
um, of where we are, where we are at. And I think that this increased complexity at the moment is what's made it easier for authoritarians to take hold of that chaos and to take advantage of it, to try to where people are like, for a little bit of stability, I might be willing to give up democracy, which is a really scary place to to be right now. And they're trying to capitalize on that. And it's something that we have to be really diligent on of paying attention to so that in particular, we don't see other large democracies like India or Brazil or the Philippines go feel like they can go away from democracy and still have prosperous nations. So, Katie, just bringing it back into what we can do, you worked with the civic product team at Facebook. I suspect on being able to bring insights to the product team around how the Facebook tool was being used through election campaigning. What are some of the decisions that the product team can or should make to spread um, the impact of dis and misinfo? Yeah, there's a couple of different um, teams and stuff that that you have to think about this. The When you're thinking about these types of issues first, it's not just the products and how the products are built. It's also what are the policies that govern them? And then how well can you enforce those? So there's the operation side, as we call it. So it's sort of a three-sided coin between product policy and operations when you're thinking about these types of things. And the work that we did would be would include teams from all three of those as we would think about that. And so the product teams could be building, it could be anything from their building, like how do you think about the share button or any friction you're putting into that? How do you build the tools to help people to um, actually see those labels around false information or the labels underneath the posts that are, you know, helping to be like, no, election day is not this day, it's actually this day, or here's how you find accurate information. They're also building the products to try to proactively find violating content. Um, you hear this a lot. This is where artificial intelligence or what intelligence or what's called machine learning classifiers are used quite a bit, where they're trying to build those to try to find content that is trying to push the wrong election day or other types of things. Your policy team is writing the rules for what that should be. They're writing the rules of what type of content should or should not be allowed. And they're having to get into quite a bit of quite a bit of detail. And then the operations teams are the ones that once that content is identified as potentially being problematic, whether that's through user reports or those products that were being built, they're then the ones that are making that call of, okay, does this violate the policy or not? Um, They're the ones that are going through all of that and and trying to be the kind of day-to-day police, if you will. Um, of these of these online platforms. And so and then on top of that, that's all like the kind of on the preventative measures. We've I want to make sure we talk about the proactive ones too, the election day reminders, reminding people how to register to vote, telling them who's on their ballot, all those different types of things all kind of um, work in tandem as we are doing this. And there are ways that they can see, you know, I was looking through Gizmodo has been dropping some of the Francis documents um, that I obviously saw a lot of them when I was inside the company, but I wasn't sure what had actually all been, what she had all taken out of the company. And there was one last week, I was looking at the first dump that the Gizmodo did, and they were talking about one where they were seeing that a lot of the more popular political pages were getting a lot of their engagement through video. And they weren't sure, is that because the algorithm is boosting video or because people like video more 
that that follow those folks. And it's those are the types of questions and dilemmas sort of to what you were asking about that this civic team would do that type of research to look at and to see and then to go to the product teams to try to actually see if we can actually figure out is this something that the company itself needs to be making a tweak to the product? Or is it something that users actually prefer? It's usually a mixture of the two and you kind of kind of make some of those calls, but that's a good example of what some of those conversations would look like. I'm glad you brought up the French election. I'm really curious to know, did anything change through that election? Were there lessons learned from the last 10 years? Did anything surprise you? So the French election, in all honesty, was pretty quiet. You know, in 2017, you had the issue with the Macron leaks, which was some leaked papers that came out, I think, 48 hours before the actual election day. There was some concern and they were seeing um, NewsGuard, I think, did a study where they saw a little bit of content where some people were starting to try to sow uh, distrust in the electoral process. That didn't really seem to manifest itself. But on the other hand, too, you generally when people when it looks like it's going to be a pretty big margin of win. Um, and even though some people were saying it could be close, et cetera, when an election is won by that big of a margin that Macron did, you don't tend to see people trying to capitalize on it very much and trying to do that sort of miss and disinfo around who the winner might have been or stuff like that, because it's just people just see that like there's no chance you can make up that much ground um, with those types of things. It's usually when you see these elections being much more like closely fought that you see some of those problems. Interesting. I'll be keen to get your opinion on the Australian election in a moment. And thinking about Australia, I understand that uh, the 2013 Australian election was the first, really, that you worked on when you were at Facebook. Um, It was the K. Rudd and Tony Abbott battle. What do you remember about that election? Uh, What did you learn? I'd be really keen to hear about that. Yeah, that was the Australian and the German elections in 2013 were the first international ones that I that I worked with. And I had the opportunity to first come to Australia um, and and do some meetings and stuff. You know, back then you're you're coming right off of Obama's historic win in 2012 and all of this fawning media over how much the Obama team had used data and digital. Um, in terms of the work that they were doing. Some of the things, particularly on social, included using that Facebook Connect button so that people weren't just talking to random strangers to try to get them out to vote. They were actually talking to their friends. And so I remember from that election, a ton of questions of what the Obama team had done, how they might be able to do this. The parties might be able to do the same thing in Australia, a lot around political advertising at the time. Um, of of using it. And it was very much focused on best practices, um, best practices of, of how candidates could use the platform um, in order to engage with citizens. It was since it was one of the earliest ones, too, we didn't have a lot of these tools yet. We didn't have the election day reminders or like the political and issue at transparency and stuff like that. But, you know, given that Australia is one of the few places it's basically on three year cycles, um, I think I've been through more Australian elections than other than U.S. elections, um, given how often that you all um, you all do them. So um, we definitely over the years started to build up more tools. Instagram you know, started to be, get, get more involved um, in, in, in the country and um, other apps as well. We're in the middle of the Australian election. Uh, what do you think Facebook and other social media platforms will be doing to mitigate the risks of disinfo and misinfo in this election? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think you'll likely see kind of going back to both that proactive um, or like the the positive stuff and like sort of the more like mitigating factors. On the positive side, I think you'll see the election day reminders. Um, you'll see things to. I can't remember if you guys have voter registration or not. Um, I'm blanking. But if you have that, they, they'll do stuff around voter registration. They'll work with the Electoral Commission. They've had a longstanding partnership with the Electoral Commission. Instagram will probably have some fun stickers. Um, I still have some from past elections with those fun sausage sizzles that happen on Election Day and stuff, stickers for people to use on their on their stories. Um, and then they'll be doing work on the, they'll have political and issue ad transparency. Um, I think this actually might be the first election where you have full enforcement in Australia. So that means people are going to be able to go. I think it's facebook.com slash ad library. And you're actually going to be able to go and see what is the Liberal Party running? What ads are the Greens running or the National Party or others? How, who are the demographics, the age, gender, location of of who is seeing those ads and stuff like that. So that'll be really interesting for researchers and stuff to see sort of um, for the first time of seeing all those online ads being live there. Um, they'll be um, trying to look for and making sure they've got um, the right partnerships in and s- mechanisms in place should there be reports of mis or disinformation or hate speech or other things so they'll be monitoring for all of those types of things as well and then um you know they'll have um when I was at the company and building these teams, we always put together what we called a cross-functional team across the company um to help um be ready for anything that might pop up as an election goes on and as people see that. So I would imagine that they have a similar group like that set up so that they're ready to rapidly respond to anything that might be um, might be happening. And then, of course, the other major social giant that has famously had some active role in in guiding the discourse around elections has been Twitter. And, um, and of course, Twitter has very recently announced that it will agree to sell itself to Elon Musk for a considerable amount of money. And Musk, famously a proponent of free speech in an absolute capacity, uh, very much opposed, it would appear, to moderation that is uh, firm even uh, of content in that sense. And so um, even though, you know, it's going to be some time yet until Elon uh, and his team take over control, as it were, of Twitter. Yet we have, you know, some observation of some anomalous activity on the Twitter platform as, as the wider public starts to respond to that news and people, you know, who might have been perhaps discouraged from uh, sharing certain ideas on Twitter, perhaps make their way back onto that platform and perhaps even some changes occurring inside of Twitter in anticipation of that handover. What, what do you think this means for the discourse that we're going to see on that platform what do, you, what do you think are going to be the major changes and qualitative differences there? So the thing with the Musk purchase is it's a little hard to know what exactly he means because he is talking at such 100,000 foot view level um, about these things. And he's actually in some ways contradicting himself as well because he's like, I only want free expression or like <clears throat> content that doesn't go against the law. But he's also saying he wants to get rid of spam bots, which in my world is also a version of content moderation. I'm guessing he doesn't want content around child abuse and terrorism on on the site, one would hope. Um, and not all of that is against the law. But the other thing, too, is whose law is he talking about? Because not all governments are democratic. Not all governments have the same laws around these things. And Twitter, to my knowledge, does not have the location data on people like other platforms might to very accurately do geoblocking. So it's not like you can very easily say, okay, people in Russia 
okay, we can make it that any content that calls the invasion into Ukraine a war doesn't show up, but it's allowed elsewhere. That's something that Facebook kind of does, and I know other platforms do, but they have the location data in which to be able to more accurately do that. So it's like, okay, whose laws are you going to follow then? Like who's, what does that look like? And so I think part of a lot of this conversation right now and what makes people nervous is particularly people like myself and my colleagues who work in this space, is we know how nuanced and hard this is for having to do it for so long that all that he's tweeting out, we're like, has he really thought about this? Like, is he really going to just do these carte blanche, no more content moderation things? Or is he being hyperbolic? And when he really gets into it, is actually gonna, you know, do a little bit better. Yeah, he's famously hyperbolic, but then I think it's probably also... It would seem that he also does think pretty deeply about the matters that he engages with um, and puts money behind. So it will be really interesting to see. And of course, the other, you know, the other big change that's occurred recently coming out of the US is, um, you know, and perhaps coincidentally with Elon uh, announcing the purchase of Twitter is that uh, the department, the DHS in the United States has announced the establishment of a disinformation governance board. And, um, you know, uh, it's been compared to the, uh, the Orwellian notion of a uh, ministry of truth. And there are concerns, I think, around that. But how do you see that uh, entrance and that player potentially having an influence on Facebook or Twitter on, you know, the discourse worldwide? So I think that this effort is a good another addition to all the different organizations that we have trying to fight mis and disinformation. We need more cooperation between tech companies, governments and civil societies in order to fight these types of things. Nina Jankakowicz, who they've hired to be the executive director of that, is a world-class researcher, particularly on Russian disinformation, which I think is fantastic. It's hard to know, though, overall, like because it's sometimes it can feel like each one of these things is just a drop in the bucket to the overall problem. But I think that's good because over time, you need more of those drops to kind of have a holistic strategy in order to fight against them. So we'll see how effective it'll be and what it's actually able to do. And I really hope, too, that it becomes a a longer term thing, because I worry a bit that we took our eye off the ball and what Russia was doing here for a little bit. Like there was a lot of attention after the 2016 election, but then it kind of waned a bit. And now it's obviously coming back to the forefront because of the invasion into Ukraine and these types of things. We need to get a bit have a bit more of an always on strategy for fighting these types of um these types of efforts, because the bad actors are going to keep getting better at it and we have to keep adapting as well. I'm really curious about your thoughts on Trump stating that he'll not be going back on Twitter and will stay on truth. So I'm really interested, does this mean that the future is more in truth style platforms or, um, and, you know, does that change the game? So I think there's a couple of things at, at play here right now. I think Trump's doing that because, listen, I think at some point there's a bunch of white guys who are all trying to, like, fight and one up one another. And I think if I were Trump and were trying to get after the rocky rollout of Truth Social, yeah, I'm surprised he hasn't started posting more on Truth Social to try to have this fight with Elon over where people are. Because, you know, Elon posted the thing about Truth Social having more downloads. I think that's more because they finally migrated over to servers where they could finally onboard all the people that were on the waiting list. So I think this is probably a temporary blip um, for Truth Social. So I don't feel like that's fair to compare apples to, it's not an apples to apples comparison there. So to some point in time, some of this, I think it's just pure competition type stuff. What I do think though, that we are seeing, this goes back to something I said earlier, is that 
what this is showing is, is this trend of decentralization in more and more platforms. Now, in some ways, this is what everybody wanted. They didn't want this power concentrated in a couple of big companies. They wanted people to have a lot of different options. But the unintended consequences of this potentially are going to be that are these just becoming individual echo chambers? Are you just talking to the same people that you want to talk to all the time? But what's also interesting is you talked, I saw some stories from conservative influencers and, and content creators. They don't like being on the getters and parlors and true socials because they don't want to just talk to the base. Their goal, they want to be talking to these broader audiences that gets them more eyeballs, it gets them more clicks, gets them more money, gets them more influence, all of those different types of things. So this is all a part of this really interesting transitionary period we are in right now of how content, how people are compartmentalizing the content they get, how many of these different apps they want to be in, and a little bit of the market, I think, is going to be at play here because if people don't like what decisions Musk is making at Twitter or Mark is making at Facebook, they can go somewhere else. But I was just talking with another, with somebody else about this of like, but overall, we're still dealing with a bunch of platforms that are still controlled by single individuals that seemingly have no accountability and no one holds them accountable. And it's really weird. What do you do about these individuals who operate basically in the, they it's undemocratic in terms of there's no accountability for them and no checks and balances, but they are having an outsized impact on democracy. So it's like, how do you have a good democracy if not everybody has checks and balances on them? And so how do we think about the solutions and the laws and stuff that we need? Maybe it needs to be not just about breaking them up, but it also needs to be about media ownership and like the size of it and how you sort of build some more of those checks and balances into it. Yeah, I mean, Obama spoke last week at Stanford about his sort of, you know, points. But I know I read a review um, that, that you wrote about this and you wanted to see more detail, more detail in the plan, the practicalities of how do we make this happen uh, in a way for the future because, uh, you know, he, he was calling on, you know, misinformation being the greatest threat to our democracy ever. So, Katie, what are the practical actions that need to be taken to protect democracy as a result of uh, the work you've been doing? What are those practical st- actions that you that you think need to be taken? Well, I think one, I don't have the all the specific answers, and it's part of been what my journey has been of like trying to try to help people think about them, but. One is, I think we actually need to have these conversations about the really, really hard trade-offs that these companies are facing when we're talking about some of these issues around how do you balance speech versus harm? And that was one of my, like you said, my complaints about President Obama's speech is like, here's one of the few individuals in the world who has experienced having to make those incredibly hard trade-offs, having that lonely position of being at the top and being the president of the United States. If anybody has that experience and that understanding, it's going to be him. And I would love to know what he would have done differently in making some of these decisions. I think, too, we also have this, we need more, and I'd like to see this a lot more from the government, um, is practical ideas of how they're going to actually do things to move things forward. I'm tired of speeches. I'm tired of declarations. I am tired of yet another letter of people being like, Somebody should do something about this. And I, you know, here's what we believe. 
but they don't get into the nitty gritty of actually building it. They're not actually like, I would take a presidential commission right now with presidents Bush, Clinton, throw Carter in there, Obama, add them with some tech influencers and people actually doing this work and actually come up with some plans of what should this look like? What are the guardrails? Like what should social media platforms be doing? Heck, fundraise to build a new one. Like if you think there should be something different, but anything to at least see action. And that's one thing at least you are still seeing from these companies is like, we argue about it. And yes, we would all love to see more resources and stuff, but at least, you know, it's particularly Facebook who I follow the most closely. They're doing a lot on this integrity space. They're putting a lot of resources into it and they have over the years. And it's something that should be acknowledged, even though we all agree that they need to be doing more. Um, But at least they're doing stuff. And I'm getting really, really frustrated by people that just keep talking and aren't actually doing. Does it concern you at all that organizations like Facebook, as they are putting efforts behind moderating, identifying misinformation, disinformation, and countering that to some degree, that they need to be forming views internally that are consistent and unitary on, for example, what is true, and then you know conducting their efforts in that sense on the basis or based on that view? Does it concern you at all that that they might be wrong, that these organizations might form a view that's incorrect or inaccurate, uh, or it will turn out later that was it was in, inaccurate and that that will have done harm in the meantime. Oh, I mean, the whole story of tech right now has been about unintended consequences from well-intentioned decisions. Like you look at, you know, the Cambridge Analytica scandal that broke in March of 2018 stem out of decisions Mark made to create Open Graph in, I think it was either 2010 or 2011. That's seven years later. A lot of these things are decisions that, you know, I I had in my South by speech that like all product decisions are political. So people might be sitting there being like, I don't work in politics. This product. No, if it's going to be used by people, it's going to be used to talk about politics and it has political ramifications. Just like I was talking about that example around video views and stuff like that. The video algorithm team was not thinking about civics and the impact of their decisions, what they were making were on politics. It was an unintended consequences. The meaningful social interactions algorithm change that Facebook made in 2017, we see from the Francis Haugen documents, made people, some of it made them more angry or, or sad or, or different things like that. And so that always worries me. I always tell people we have to think through the unintended consequences because even some things that people think are, well, if I went in there, I just make this change because that would solve everything. And if you talk to folks that work in this area, they're going to be like, yeah, but did you realize if you do this, this, these other harms could happen. And that's why I call them impossible trade-offs as we're doing this. And so I always am worried about that. But what we have to do is a couple things. As society, you have to also be used to that changing. That's why companies will change. We have to be okay with them changing their policies. We have to be okay with them wanting to adapt and all that. We need to be encouraging research. So I'm a little worried that if these companies just get smacked over the head, when they find that there's harm happening on their platform, they're not going to do the research for it because they don't even want to know. And we should accept the fact, just like we do in many different areas in our lives, we're not going to get harm down to zero. Nobody likes to talk about that, but it's the truth. Harm will never get fully to zero. So we need to have that question of how do we just get it as close to zero as possible? And how do we do that? And how can we do that in in an honest way and be willing to change and adapt and be willing to admit that what was built was wrong? I think one of the things that frustrates some folks about leaders in the tech world is they're sometimes very reluctant 
to admit that they did something that had an, a, a bad outcome. That, that, that admitting that that happened is a show of weakness or is going to be a way for somebody to try to overtake you, whatever it might be. And I frankly think we could use a little bit more humility in all of this of admitting where things worked and where it didn't. It's sort of the journey I've been on too, kind of thinking about my own decisions and stuff I did when I was at, not just at the platforms, but on campaigns and stuff. And like, how do we learn from those so that we can better identify and think through our decisions going forward to hopefully not have as many bad outcomes? Yeah, definitely. It's broader just than the tech world where that leadership, uh, I think people would like to see more humility and, and more admission of, uh, of mistakes. It seems that Section 230 in the US is a really important, a really important instrument um, for tech platforms like this and a really important perhaps principle or uh, introduction of principle that the platform itself should not be held as it seems that people would like to hold them accountable for the content that is purveyed on those platforms. So Section 230 is a piece of legislation uh, that you can tell me tell us more about, but my understanding is that it sort of says Facebook runs a social media platform. If somebody posts content on Facebook, that's not, that's not Facebook's fault. Facebook should be held harmless uh, for the content that's posted. And that has been challenged in a few different arenas around the world. In Australia, most recently, we saw organizations, I think media companies, in fact, whose message boards beneath, uh, I think it was a news article where people were posting content onto those message boards and uh, some of it was objectionable and, and the, the company itself who was, who was hosting that message board was found to have been liable for the content that was posted on there. And so the, the view is not ubiquitous around the world at this stage that the Section 230 principle ought to hold. I wonder if you, if you have thoughts on that and what you think is, is important for other countries to, to consider. I mean, in all honesty, the U.S. is not the place right now to be looking at, at as a, as a uh, model for regulation. Europe's kind of eating our lunch there with the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act and even the U.K. with the U.K. online safety bill. Though those have their challenges, too. Um, they are nowhere near perfect, but they're at least doing something unlike the, the U.S. But sections, I think you what I'm actually seeing a bit more is that while conversation around Section 230 absolutely exists. I don't think it's where anybody thinks actual regulation will happen because of the First Amendment here. And anything regulating what the content actually says by the government is going to be really hard to do. And so that's why you're starting to see a shift in the regulation being proposed, looking at more to require more transparency so that it's easier for researchers and others to even understand what's happening on these platforms. Because in many ways, I don't think we fully understand what the problem is yet. I find it's very hard for people to really in detail describe what the problem is and what does success look like. Um, and success for everybody might look a little bit different, too. Um, you're also seeing more legislation look towards the design of these platforms. What are the um, speed bumps, if you will? What are the digital speed bumps that can be put into place um, that can make these platforms um a little bit more safe? So there's ideas around like limiting the number of shares. That, that people can do or like putting some of those pop-ups and more friction and stuff like that into place. So you're starting to see some of them move into that direction um, as well. And the U.S. is kind of lagging behind. I mean, Freedom House, I think in their January report, said 48 countries had considered laws and regulations. Unfortunately, most of those were problematic. Um, and they're actually worried about what that's going to do to speech overall. But the U.S. is definitely bringing up the tail end on this. And I think um, some of those things you spoke about, uh, which is, a, you know, to slow down the sharing of disinformation, obviously, through product decisions is, is a great sort of way the market 
corrects. And I think more learnings will come out of uh, this research study between Facebook and uh, external researchers that you highlight. I think it's due any time now, isn't it? Um, I- I'm thinking that in the next couple of weeks, this is going to be made available. Is, is that right? It's unclear at the at the moment. It's supposed to be sometime this year. Given that it was postponed a whole year last summer, I wouldn't put it past that they might have to delay it a little bit more. There could be, you know, they got they're doing this. I like the way that they're doing this. And of course, I'm biased in saying it because I was at the company when it when it got kicked off. But trying to do it in a way that it'll be peer reviewed, that it is trying to make it as absolutely legitimate as possible for researchers working with the company. But there's been challenges. There's been challenges in getting the data from the from the companies and trying to do so in a privacy safe way. There's always challenges. The academic cycle is long for peer reviews and stuff like that, too. So, yeah, it is due. Um, I mean, we're hoping that we'll hear something sometime soon or they might decide to do kind of in, in drips. So we might not get it all at once, but some pieces as it comes. But it's definitely something I'm keeping an eye on. So that core question that is is being researched is is around whether or not social media makes us more polarized as a society or merely does it reflect the decision the divisions that already exist in society and how does it help people become more informed about politics or less so do you have any hypothesis on on what might come out well i think you've seen from other studies that show that facebook alone is not what caused our polarized society There's a lot of different aspects in there. The question that I think and I think what people are hoping is to what extent did Facebook and social media perhaps accelerate it? Did it cause people to move even further right or left than maybe they would have before? So maybe we would have been polarized, but maybe not as polarized. I'm not sure what what it'll what it'll say. My guess is that it's not going to fit one of the preconceived notions that you kind of see in, in a world where people like to have the binaries, right? Like most things, it's probably going to be nuanced and it's going to make some people happy. But overall, they're going to be like, oh, this wasn't the silver bullet we were hoping for with all the answers of how to like fix these things that 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 we are that we are doing. And so there's no question it'll show that there was impact, both good and bad. The question is just to what degree. So for all the Aussies that are going to go to the polls in a couple of weeks' time and are watching their social media and, uh, and partic- possibly sharing political content, what do people need to do to identify disinformation and prevent spreading it? So the biggest thing to do is just be a critical consumer of news when you see something. I always tell my friends and family, like, and, it, and this is a rule I follow myself. If I read something and I'm like, my immediate reaction is outrage, I look for, I, I do a couple of things. One, I look at the publication. I look if there's an author. I look for the date. And then I do a Google search to see if I can find another reputable publication that is backing up what that claim says to try to find more um, to see like, okay, there must be context I'm missing or maybe this isn't true. Maybe we can't, I don't know more about what the, who's actually sending this, stuff like that. So those are some of the steps I go through before I decide to be like retweeting it or, you know, commenting on Facebook or, or anything like that around those, those types of things. I think too, and I, I've not been very good at this this week with all the Elon Musk stuff because I definitely took the bait last night. I was quite upset yesterday at what he was doing towards the Twitter public um, general counsel person. But in general, I try to not, if I find myself feeling highly emotional, not be sharing and stuff right away and trying to give myself a beat. 
um, before I do it and kind of thinking it through. Um, sometimes I fail at it. I think I think we all have those moments, but um, I hope being conscious of it that maybe it's less likely that. And here's the thing too: if you do accidentally share something that's false, don't beat yourself up over it, but consider either taking it down or leaving a comment on it or or doing something to let the folks that you shared it with know that he actually found out that it was wrong. And I think modeling that sort of behavior is good because I think too much within the internet, we want to show that we think we're per- that we're perfect. We don't like to show flaws or, or vulnerabilities. And the fact of the matter is, I, I'm sure all of us have been duped by wrong content at some point in time in the world. Um, and sometimes just owning up to that and then just trying to be smarter as you go along is important. Great advice. Be skeptical and take a beat. I really like those two principles. So finally, Katie, what are you expecting to see in the next couple of years in as we as we move into that mass election phase? What do you think will be happening? I think we're going to see a lot of change. I think we're going to see a lot of change in terms of, again, not only how people are using the Internet to communicate and consume information. I think we'll continue to see evolution in terms of how these companies think about their content policies, how good they get at enforcing them. But we're also going to see changes, too, in terms of like how content is even presented to us to us. I was reading through Facebook's earnings call yesterday and something interesting that Mark said really stuck stood out to me in that he said that he expects our feeds to become a lot more filled with content generated, not generated by AI, but using AI and algorithms to find content that is not necessarily, was not necessarily put up by people that you're connected with, but that you might find interesting. So it's a lot more like how TikTok's algorithm works when you go there. And that's interesting. That's a big change. It means the social graph is no longer becoming the core part of what you're seeing in your feeds. And it's being decided more by the algorithms. That makes me a little nervous because the whole part too around AI and machine learning is you can't necessarily draw a straight line between why exactly you're seeing a piece of content in what order in your feed. And so that means that the decisions these companies are making of how what the inputs are going into that algorithm and how they are stack ranking them and prioritizing them is even more important. Um, and so we're going to need that transparency, that algorithmic transparency. But we also got to find ways to be tracking this across a lot more different platforms. And what do we look at in terms of the design of these platforms, particularly given a lot of them are moving more towards encryption, where you're not going to be able to act on the content and you've got to put more of those speed bumps into place. So we should expect a ton of change. We should expect to have to have a lot of adaptation. And thankfully for the work that I'm doing in, I think I continued a lot of work uh, that's going to be needed at this intersection of tech and democracy and policy. Love it. Well, good luck with that. And thanks very much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. This is Christy. And this is Adam on The Foil Podcast. Check us out on www.thefoil.ai and follow us on all the socials. Share this podcast out to anyone you think might be interested in what we, our guests, have to say. Let them know what we've got coming up. See you next time.